May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so I wonder what you heard as we listened to those two stories from Mark 6 this morning. Two stories. I wonder how often we've read them on their own. Probably often. I'm sure I have probably preached on them on their own. But when we do that, when we just read them as individual stories, when we pluck them out of Mark, then, well, we miss a few things. We miss, for example, the context of the people that Mark was writing the story to. They were a people who had witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple the enslavement and slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Jews and the end of all that really had anchored them to that point. And they were experiencing the rejection of their trust in Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. They were being slowly evicted from the worship, from worship in the synagogues, no longer allowed to join their brothers and sisters. And they were being persecuted by the Romans as atheists. Life was tough. It was full of rejection, uncertainty and fear. And for these people, Mark wrote his gospel. The story of the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ. A story that they continued to be part of. A story that began with Jesus preaching, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Let that blow your mind and change your hearts and lives. Trust this good news. Last week I talked about the reign of God, the kingdom of God, being the restoration of God's intentions within all creation. The defeat of all that prevents people and creation from thriving. And all that brings death being defeated in Jesus. The reign of God is revealed in Jesus offering hope and life. So this gospel was written to a community under enormous pressure to encourage them. And it was written to all the other communities that would also listen to this gospel. To encourage them to continue to live the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God and to continue to living to living out to live out the ongoing story of the good news of Jesus the Christ another thing that we might miss if we just read the story in isolation is that it was not written in isolation these stories were not written to be plucked out at random to be read as standalone stories when Mark wrote his gospel, there were no sentences, there were no paragraphs, there were no verses, there were no chapters, there were no chapter headings. The chapter headings are pretty recent actually, and they're put there by the publishers, so they're not scripture at all. So if you read the different versions of the Bible, you'll find different chapter headings at different points, and they're different. Now those headings are quite helpful if you're trying to find a story, 
would be a lot more difficult if those headings weren't there. And in fact, the early versions of the message paraphrase didn't even have chapters. So that was quite difficult. To, well, it didn't have chapters. It didn't have verses. So it was a lot more difficult to find stuff. But the downside of all those verses and chapters and headings is that while well, they encourage us to just read things in little chunks, they kind of stop us reading the whole gospel in one hit. Because, well, it just doesn't feel like you need to do that. But in fact, that's how Mark wrote his gospel to be read, in one hit, out loud, people listening to it. And so when we read it in a little chunk, we forget that this actually begin, belongs to a much bigger story, and we miss the flow of that story. For example, we miss that Jesus had been healing and teaching around the Galilee on the more Jewish side, and teaching about the kingdom of God using seeds, seeds that grow, even though you have no idea how they grow, and mustard seeds which you plant but then pop up in all kinds of places where you didn't intend them to grow and you actually don't want them to grow, pesky mustard seeds. And then Jesus heads off with his followers uh, to the other side in their boats and he has a little snooze and on the way they encounter one huge storm. Whipped up by the spirits and powers that seek to prevent people and creation from thriving. Storm spirits that seek to stop Jesus, the spirits of death. And the followers are terrified. This is well outside their comfort zone. And so they wake Jesus and he calms the storm and he asks, Why are you frightened? Don't you trust? Don't you have faith yet? And they are filled with fearful awe. And they ask the question of the gospel. Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And then Jesus arrives on the other side of the lake. And he heals a man possessed by a legion of spirits. The local villagers, on seeing their pigs running down the hill and into the sea, and the man restored, are filled with fear and uncertainty, and they demand that he leave immediately. They reject everything that Jesus is and all that he is about. And so, Jesus returns to the other side, the more Jewish side, and there, a sneaky woman who has been unwell for 12 years has Jesus healed her by stealth. She has suffered rejection and she is filled with fear and uncertainty as she does this and after she has done this and yet Jesus affirms her and her actions and then Jesus heals a 12-year-old girl who had been dead and then he goes home. And, well, that doesn't go so well, does it? We already had an inkling that it wasn't going to go well because Jesus' family had come to try to get him home because, well, they thought he'd gone crazy and they didn't like where this was heading, so they tried to kind of do an intervention. 
And Jesus says, well, all these people around me are now my family. And when he stands in the synagogue to teach, well, those villagers are surprised and sceptical. And then they're just plain, ha, picture's missing, that's sad. It was a great picture. They're just plain hostile. There's supposed to be a picture of a whole lot of hostile people at that point. Not as hostile as Luke has them. In Luke's gospel, they try to throw them off a mountain. But still hostile enough. And their rejection means he does little in the way of healing, although he does heal one or two people. And this becomes a low point. I wonder what the disciples were feeling at this point. I wonder what they were thinking at this point. What would it have been like for them, having been through all these events, to get to Jesus' village where he's known the best and to experience all this hostility and rejection? What's it like for them? Turn to your neighbour for a moment and have a conversation. What you think it was like for those disciples. Got about 30 seconds. What do you think? What was it like for those disciples? Right? Made them start to doubt. Yep. Any other thoughts? That Jesus was Demoralizing. Sorry? Demoralizing. Yeah. Jesus was trying to teach them the reality of what was going to happen, and they really didn't understand it. Right. So quite confusing, uncertain. Scary. Scary. Very scary. Right. Frustrated. Absolutely. They'd seen some amazing things. Other people had seen some amazing things, but these people weren't willing to even look at that. They just saw him as the carpenter. Any other ideas? Maybe it might make the disciples gather around Jesus to support him, knowing him as they did. And being rejected, they were offering more support to him. Yeah. Yep. I wonder if the people in the village thought, uh, were afraid of him seeing the good that he'd done. That's an interesting perspective that they were afraid of him. They certainly didn't like the changes in him. This was not the Jesus they knew. It's a bit like the one day Paul talked about, isn't it? That yeah. People not respect him. <coughs> But with a whole lot more intensity because there is a finite amount of honour. And if somebody gets more honour, other people lose honour. And if Jesus, who was a carpenter, very low honour, suddenly becomes a rabbi, much higher honour, that means lots of people are going to lose honour. So there's, there's real stuff at stake in terms of your place in the community. Well, what really surprises me then, given all of that, is that 
It's at this point that Mark decides Jesus sends his disciples out. Because I would not have thought, if I was going to write a story, that this would be the point. I would have chosen a much more upbeat moment when everything was going swimmingly well to go, alright guys, I'm now going to send you out to continue what we're doing here, to keep up the good work. But no, Jesus waits till after they've been rejected and experienced all of that, and then, then he sends them out, two by two. And... I mean, this is not just the rejection here, but they've just, in the flow of the story, also had the rejection from the other side of the lake, where Jesus is rejected by the people of Gennesaret, who went, well, this is way too scary, we have no more pigs, so you can go back to the other side. We don't want you here. So they were amazed, they were horrified. So the rejection is starting to build up and it's at that point, at a point of uncertainty and fear and doubt that they get sent out to carry on that work. For us as Franciscans, this story or other versions of this story are really important. So on the Feast of St. Matthias on the 24th of February 1208, Francis heard this story in Matthew's Gospel being read. And and it's a slightly harder version because they don't get sandals in Matthew's Gospel. Although Francis did wear sandals because I've seen his sandals. They're in the Basilica in Assisi. And it was like Jesus was speaking to him personally. That he was amongst those disciples being sent out. And it gave him the basis for his understanding of his calling, but also his rule of life, both for himself and for all those who would join him. So it is still the basis of the rule of life for the Order of Friars Minor OFM around the world today. This reading. So he felt like he was joining those disciples being sent out two by two, and he sent out his brothers two by two, in exactly the same way, utterly dependent on God. It's one of the things that makes the mendicants, Franciscans, Dominicans, different from all the orders up to that point, the Augustans, the the Benedictines, because they lived in closed lives. They lived in monasteries, people came to them. Benedictines, you would join a monastery, you would never leave that monastery unless you were sent off on an errand. For Franciscans, they had no monasteries. Dominicans, they had no monasteries. They were sent out into the world two by two to be like Jesus' disciples, trusting God to provide through the hospitality of those they would meet on the way. In many ways, when Francis heard this story, it was the final piece of a jigsaw that had been slowly coming together, that had its roots back when he returned from being in prison in Perugia after the failed battle. Uh, He came back sick in body and soul. Uh, But it really began when, uh, when he was riding down the Via Francesca one day, the road to 
France. Uh, there was um, a leper hospital on that road, and uh, there was a leper on the road uh, ringing his bell. And Francis, who had a deep fear and loathing of lepers, as did most people at the time, uh, rode as far to the side of the road as he could possibly get, to be as far away from that leper as he could possibly get. But something within him made him stop and get off his horse and go over to the leper and give him money and then kiss him. At that moment he faced his deepest fears. And as he did that, he encountered the crucified and risen Christ. At the moment when he met his deepest fears. And so he began to live on occasions at the leper hospital and to serve and minister to them. And he would get, once brothers began to join him, them to go and live in the leper hospital as well and to serve them so that they too could face their deepest fears. And in the moment of facing their deepest fears, discover the crucified one. The story continued as he heard the crucified Christ invite him to repair Christ's church in San Damiano, which he understood to mean that little church on the hill, but in fact we now recognise it meant the whole church. And it continued as he stripped himself naked in front of the bishop and the townspeople of Assisi and returned all that was belonged to his father to his father and renounced his belonging to the Bernardoni family. You are no longer my father. I will only call God my father. And as he heard this story on the feast of St. Matthias in 1208, it all came together. All that had been happening up to that point. It invited him to create a rule that would allow him to face his fear and uncertainty and to know Christ in his fear and his experience of rejection and abuse. The rejection and abuse would continue. And as he experienced that, he knew that now was still the time, just as it had been in the time of Jesus, that God's kingdom was still all around, and that he was invited to go on living in the story, having his mind blown, blown and allowing the story to continue to change his heart and mind as he continued to trust this good news at a profoundly deep level. Well, that's Francis. But I wonder then, going back to Mark's community, what they heard in this gospel and in these stories. What do you think these stories offered that original community in the shadow of the fall of Jerusalem, experiencing rejection from synagogues and persecution from Romans, as they, like those early disciples, were filled with doubt and fear and uncertainty? What do these stories offer them? Well, I invite you to have a conversation about that. So what do you think? 
What did the story offer Mark's community? Did think things. I could hear lots of conversation. Faith. Faith. Yep. What kind of faith? Faith that. Just faith. Yep. It was a challenge, you know, a challenge to trust God. Right. And so there, would, there was a hope to cling on to, even though things had seemed so bad. Right. That's important. So, a hope to cling on to in the hard times, which is like a crucifixion, but there is the resurrection. A really strange way of telling a story to try and get people to believe. Yeah. These, these were people who already believed what some people think Mark's whole gospel is about. So Mark's gospel, if you go to chapter 16, which is the resurrection, it's very short, eight verses. And it finishes with Jesus telling Mary to go and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. End of story. Doesn't go any further. So a lot of people think that actually Mark was saying... Now, the danger is with the resurrection, it happened in Israel, in Galilee or Jerusalem, depending on which gospel you're reading, or both, uh, if you're John. Um, but Mark didn't want the resurrection appearances stuck in Israel. He wanted them wherever he was writing for. He wanted people to be able to recognise the crucified and risen Christ where they were in the midst in the midst of their hard times so that they would carry on living the faith even though it was really hard and it was not going the way they thought it was going to go when you follow the Messiah things are going to go well well things weren't going well So, but the disciples must have a huge faith to go out with nothing. Oh yeah, although they really didn't have a lot anyway. So, I mean, they weren't. I mean, they had some things, and luckily there were women who were bankrolling the whole operation. Um, but, but yeah, a lot of those people were quite. I mean, some of them were wealthier, but some of them were quite poor. So, used to not having a lot anyway. In a strange sort of way, there's a parable, a parallel, I should say, 
with the Holocaust and how the people in the Holocaust, the, the Jews in the gas chambers must have yeah. felt. Yeah, and the reaction of that was there is no God or God is here with us in the, in the gas chamber mm -hmm. or in the God is here in, in the concentration camp. And maybe the disciples would look at us now with all our things and think how little faith we have that we have to, that we feel like we have to um, get stuff for ourselves instead of allowing God to do us what we need. Yeah. Which is the ongoing challenge of being a Franciscan, I would have to say. So, what I want us to now do is to think about what causes us fear and uncertainty right now. And what do these stories offer us? So, we've thought about Mark's community and what Mark was trying to say to them, what Jesus was saying to them through these stories. What, how do our stories touch or echo Mark's community? Where do we, what causes us great fear and uncertainty? And what do these stories offer us in our fear and uncertainty? So just spend a moment thinking about that. Or if you want to, you can talk to your neighbour as well. Just a closing comment. Uh, so what we have done is called exegesis, and that's what um, preachers are supposed to do every week. And, and that is simply the process of uh, this big word called hermeneutics. And, um, and when you go to theological college, that's what you get taught how to do. But basically what you're doing is thinking about what would the story have meant? What does this book mean in its original context? So we think, what is Mark's gospel saying to those people, Mark's community, and to the other communities that would have listened to it? And then asking, how does our story echo or parallel those stories? And then what is that story then saying to us? What is God saying to us through this story? And that's what exegesis is. That's what I try to do every week. But I thought, well, we could all just do that together. Very well. Yes.